Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to The Suit, as recorded by Jerry Douglas with James Taylor and written by Hugh Prestwood, our guest on this episode of Songcraft. Prestwood has written 20 charting singles on the Billboard Country Rankings, including eight top ten hits. He began his professional career as a folk singer-songwriter in Greenwich Village in the 1970s, before finding commercial success as a writer when Judy Collins began recording his songs toward the end of that decade. In the 1980s, he appeared on the country charts with the number one singles The Sound of Goodbye by Crystal Gale and The Moon is Still Over Her Shoulder by Michael Johnson. By the following decade, Prestwood was regularly topping the charts with titles such as Randy Travis's Hard Rock Bottom of Your Heart, which earned him the BMI Country Song of the Year Award. Similarly, Trisha Yearwood's recording of The Song Remembers When earned him NSAI's Song of the Year honors and an Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Music and Lyrics. Other artists who've recorded his songs include Alison Krauss, Anne Murray, Conway Twitty, Shelby Lynn, John Conley, Barbara Mandrell, Gene Watson, The Judds, Lee Greenwood, Tanya Tucker, Alison Krauss, Jimmy Buffett, Sammy Kershaw, Don Williams, Kristen Chenoweth, Vern Gosden, Kathy Matea, and Colin Ray, who took the song On the Verge to the top of the charts in 1997. Hugh recently released his first full-length album as an artist, I Used to Be the Real Me, on Judy Collins' Wildflower Records. He was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2006. You know, so many times we do these interviews and we're talking to, to people that have been part of big songs and part of co-writes of big songs, but Hugh Presswood is really kind of one of the lone rangers of country songwriting. He's a guy that sort of goes off into his own personal space up there in New York. I think he lives kind of out in, in the country up there. Yeah. And then comes back after like a month of solitude with this beautifully crafted number one song. Yeah, they say that no man is an island. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> Hugh Presswood may be an he island. Is a, he is, I think he might live on Long Island. He is an island on Long Island. <laughs> he is a songwriting island unto himself. Yeah, but it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, you know, the more people we talk to, you sort of see how different minds work and, and not everybody's process is the same. And, just sort of the Nashville way isn't Hugh's way, yeah. But he certainly conquered Nashville with it, yeah. And he's not in any way uh, like antagonistic towards Nashville, right, or like he doesn't have any sort of bad feelings about Nashville. But he's he's just a guy who has marched to the beat of his own drum and made it work for him. Yeah, and and come out with songs that that are really uh, just kind of works of craftsmanship, particularly lyrically. Yeah. A song like Ghost in This House. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even Hard Rock Bottom of Your Heart, which is a little more lighthearted and up-tempo, but just the concept is so great, the way he approaches forgiveness in that song. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, actually, not a kid, I was 18. I was somewhere between boy and man, Paul. <laughs> uh, when fine I was, line. When I was 18, I went on a trip with my parents to Canada. It was some sort of Canadian country music uh, industry event and my right. father who's in the <clears throat> industry he was invited uh, to come to that and so was Hugh Presswood and his wife typical and family vacation typical family yeah. vacation a couple other Nashville writers and um, I, and I talk about this a little in the interview with Hugh which everyone will hear in a moment but um, 
actually, I, I had completely forgotten this memory until we started working on this interview and remembered that Hugh Presswood is one of the first times as a young guy who was just getting into starting to try to write my own songs, who I heard and just was like, wow, that is a crafted mm. song and I am moved by it. Wow. You know, it was like it was the, it was one of the first times I really appreciated the artistry of mm. song craft, to borrow a term. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I had kind of like just forgotten about that memory. It came flooding back to me when we were getting ready to, to do this interview. And um, so he had like a, an impact on me in terms of just seeing like a real guy in real life who wasn't famous, right. but was writing songs that were famous and recognizing like what really goes into that and that there's a difference between just like sort of tossing out a song and really like crafting something that's special. It sounds like that might have been the moment that pushed you over that gentle precipice from boy to man. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, let's, let's not give you too much credit. Right. You know, one other thing that, that people will hear about in the interview that we kind of had to talk about was this moment when he was arrested in the airport for having a loaded gun. Oh, yeah. Let's don't even give any of that away. Yeah. Just okay. listen, folks. A loaded gun. Yeah. I mean, a country a country songwriter with a loaded gun. It, now it that's legit. Can't get any better. So yeah, <laughs> the interview is more ghost in this house than it is gun in my bag. But but we will we will get there. But eventually. it's got both something yeah. for everyone. So it's got guns. It's got romance. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a listen. Hugh, welcome to Songcraft. I understand that you were born uh, down in the West Texas town of El Paso, and uh, Texas obviously has a very rich musical history, and I'm curious, what are some of your earliest musical memories growing up in that part of the country? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I heard a lot of, uh, you know, country music, particularly Texas swing kind of music. Yeah. I also heard, you know, being on the border, I also heard a whole lot of uh, Mexican music. Uh and uh, then, you know, I just, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a house where we, I got to hear a lot of classical music and, you know, just good stuff. So I, had, I think I have a pretty good sort of programming uh, in my musical genes. Were your folks uh, musical? Were they musicians? You know, uh, my grandparents on my father's side were both musicians. Oh, wow. I, you know, it's funny because they were dead before uh, I was born. And so f even after I became a professional songwriter, I didn't think anyone else in the family it was musical and one then one day i found out actually they were both musical and uh, <laughs> my grandmother wrote the high school theme song to the andalusia high school uh whatever right <laughs> so you had it alabama had it had it in the dna there yeah i think there's something to that yeah well, you know, and i understand that you started playing guitar around age 10 but you didn't really get into writing songs seriously until you were in your mid to late 20s what prompted you to start writing you know, that, um, what really happened was, uh, you know, I, I, lo I loved poetry and I loved uh, playing the guitar. And I used to think to myself, you know, I should be writing songs. But in El Paso, you know, I never, ever met another songwriter. I had no idea, you know, what the deal was. But uh, I was teaching, uh, I got out of college and I started teaching the sixth grade huh. uh, class in El Paso. And uh, at the same time I got kind of dragged into a uh, cover band. It was a really good band in El Paso. And, you know, at some point they opened up the you know, possibility that, uh, you know, I, by, I had written probably a, two or three songs at that point, and they said, well, you know, if you'll, 
if you'll write them, we'll play some of them. So that really started opening up the door. Yeah. Me, I think something about having an outlet that maybe you know, these songs would be heard is what really got me writing. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. So you were playing in a, in a cover band at, at night, staying up late, and then going and uh, teaching sixth grade during the days, huh? Right. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a pretty good time. Yeah, 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 man. Um, well, you moved to New York City in 1973 to pursue a career as a singer-songwriter. And talk a little bit about the process of how you came to the decision to sort of uproot and, and take that leap and, and, you know, bet it all on the, on the songwriting career. And, and also why New York versus Los Angeles or Nashville or, or Austin or some other place. Right. You know, a, a real pivotal point in my uh, sort of musical career was when I was beginning to approach the age 30. Hmm. And uh, I, you know, by that time I had, I was, I was writing quite a, quite a few songs and, um, uh, I had a good friend up in New York City. She was a girl from El Paso. Her name was uh, Trisha O'Neill. Right. She was a great singer, and I used to accompany her in El Paso. And she got on a Broadway, long, long story short here, and uh, CBS got interested in her as a recording act. Hmm. And they said, you know, we'll pay, we'll pay for a session, uh, and you can pick out your songs. Well, lo and behold, she calls him and says, you know, I'm going to do your, some of your songs in this session. Wow. So I got flown to New York, and this is you know prior to moving. I got flown to New York and uh, did this session. And the producer of the session got sort of interested in me as a singer songwriter. Huh, interesting. And, and so I suddenly had this sort of affirmation that I was not expecting. Yeah. And I went back to Texas, and uh, as I said, as, as my as my thirtieth birthday was approaching, I thought to myself, well, you know, I I I don't think I'm going to be able to live my, with myself if I don't you know give this a shot. Yeah. And I didn't know anybody in L.A. I didn't know anybody in Nashville. So, I, you know, I moved to New York. And, you know, I, and I just started playing every uh, open mic showcase that I could do, you know, uh, and knocked around uh, New York for really several years before I got discovered by Judy Collins. Yeah. Well, even, you know, before that moment, the earliest Hugh Presswood cut that we were able to find was a song called Dorothy on Jackie DeShannon's You're the Only Dancer album from 1977. How did you get that Jackie DeShannon cut? You know, I was just, I was knocking around uh, New York City, and uh, I met this uh, pretty successful uh, producer named Alan Lorber, hmm. and he took an interest in some of my songs, and, uh, you know, he sent he sent uh, the song out to Jim Ed Norman out in California, and uh, Jim Ed Norman, he told, later on told me he was listening to a bunch of stuff, and all of a sudden this unusual song came on about what happened to Dorothy, you know, when she got back from Oz. Right. And lo and behold, he cut it. That was really exciting. Yeah. And, and that's a cut I really love. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's cool, too, as a as an aspiring songwriter to, um, you know, have a, a song cut not just by a, a well-known artist, but a well-known artist who's also a respected songwriter. Amen. Well, even though you landed that album cut with, with Jackie DeShannon, your first real chart success came in 1979 when Judy Collins had a top 20 adult contemporary hit with Hard Time for Lovers. Hard 
know, she ended up naming her album after your song and also recording her own version of, of Dorothy on that LP. And I was actually looking at the back of the LP the other day. And it's interesting that the other writers on that album are Randy Newman, Stephen Sondheim, Don Henley and Glenn Fry, Alan and Marilyn Bergman, Marvin Hamlish uh, and Carol Bayer Sager and the legendary Rogers and Hart. And you're actually the only guy out of that group of writers who has more than one song on the album. So how did Judy kind of find out about you and wind up embracing this relative unknown guy so enthusiastically? You know, first of all, uh, you know, regarding who was on that record, I couldn't believe it either. I don't like that, you know. Uh, what am I doing on this record? Yeah. Um, what happened was, uh, the, the real sort of thing that got me started with Judy Collins, she'd heard the song Dorothy and liked it. And then I was playing a showcase at the uh, bottom line in New York City. Right. Uh, Tom Paxton was there. And he came up to me afterwards and was very complimentary. By then, I had some songs I really would thought I'd love to get to Judy Collins. And so I said, you know, would you consider sending her, you know, if I sent you a tape, would you send it to her? And he, and he said he'd be glad to do it. And so that's what he did. And uh, I was about a year later, I, was, I had a straight job working at Harcourt Brace Yovanovitch Book Publishing. Huh. And uh, I had a secretary, and she called me up. I mean, she, she said to me one day, Judy Collins is on the phone. <laughs> wow. Uh, Holy cow. And uh, anyway, Judy Collins really liked uh, the songs on the... I Probably there were three or four songs on there. One of them was Dorothy. And uh, so she said, well, I'm going to send, uh, I'm gonna send uh, my assistant over. Anne Pertil was her name. And listen, and, and she's going to go... And you play her some other songs. So uh, Anne Pertil came over to my apartment, and uh, I played her a bunch of songs, one of which was Hard Times for Lovers. And I remember her saying, well, that's a good song, but I don't hear that for Judy. Hmm. Right. And uh, so at that point, Judy uh, still did not get to hear the song. Uh, a real, and then I, when Judy Collins said, I'm going to definitely cut Dorothy and maybe something else, I went to her and I said, uh, can you get me out of my straight job? You know, find me some kind of staff writing uh, something or other. Sure. And so she said, well, let me talk to the people that are producing my next album, which was the entertainment company. And... Uh, she says, give me a tape to play for the entertainment company. So I made up a tape of about probably eight songs, and one of them was Hard Times for Lovers. And lo and behold, everybody loved it. So, huh. Wow. So, you know, I got notified they were going to cut that and Dorothy. So yeah. I was thrilled and uh, scared. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, now you got to step up to the plate, huh? <laughs> well, you know, it is. It is uh, it, it's one thing to have fantasies, and then when you suddenly feel like you are going to be exposed for the, perhaps the fraud you are. You know? <laughs> There's also that thing, too. You put together a thing of eight songs, which it may have taken you, I don't know, a couple of years to put together those those eight songs. And then right. all of a sudden you're like, wow, am I supposed to be able to do that every week, every day? Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. I uh, A lot of people, when I had that Hard Times for Lovers hit... Uh, they told me, you know, you really got to take advantage of it right now. You got to hurry up and, you know, mm. strike while the iron is hot and, and all that sort of thing. And I just, uh, that's just not who I am in a way. So oh, I just yeah. sort of plotted on. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious actually, and, and maybe, I don't know what your job was at the, at the book publisher, but you mentioned poetry, and I think there's a certain literary uh, quality to a lot of your songs. Uh, were you... Was that job at the at the book publisher um, just kind of uh, like an administrative type thing, or were you involved in any sort of creative aspect of of being a, a book publishing 
guy. No, I was just in a, you know doing an uh, administ. I was administrative stuff. I was the assistant, uh, uh, whatever, in, in one of the departments. Yeah. But uh, my literary influence is really, you know, I was an English major, and I read a lot of poetry, and and I love good poetry, particularly poetry that is not so confusing. You don't know what the hell the guy's saying. <laughs> like Robert Frost and Emily Dickinson, and so right. forth. Right, and 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 I just think uh, that, in a funny way, sort of started developing my ear for the human language. Yeah, huh. for the English language. Well, you talk about that thing of kind of striking while the iron is hot, um, but it actually took four years before you kind of had that type of Billboard success again as a writer. But when you did, it was a major hit. Uh, Crystal Gale took your song "The Sound of Goodbye" to the top ten on the adult contemporary chart, and then number one on the country chart. nomination for her performance i mean how how does a folky singer songwriter playing around greenwich village you know how and getting judy collins cuts and all this how does that guy end up then being a country songwriter well you know it's funny judy collins had a lot to do with that as well hmm. she said go see jimmy bowen because i'm talking to him about maybe doing my next record hmm. I, and i had no idea what a big cheese jimmy bowen was right uh, <laughs> uh i'm glad i didn't no really i would have been terrified <laughs> But uh, so when I was in Nashville, I, I had a meeting with him, and I had a cassette of three songs on there. And I was really so nervous uh, that I didn't even want to be there while he listened to them. So I just said, you know, listen to him when you get a chance. He said, okay. And then what's really interesting about this story is uh, he apparently he liked the sound of goodbye, and apparently made a copy of that for Crystal Gale. And at, at some point, he forgot where he got the song. <laughs> And so uh, I got a friend to Nashville calling me up, and he says, you won't believe what uh, Crystal Gale's first single off her new record is. It sounded goodbye, and I couldn't believe it. Wow. And then he, and then he told me that uh, they actually had cut the song and had it slated for the first single and didn't know who wrote it. Wow. <laughs> and they were, they, were, they were rushing around Nashville playing the song for everybody, trying Jeez. to find out. And finally, they played it for an engineer who uh, was working for Tommy West, who I had a good relationship with too and he recognized it as one of my songs man i mean that's such an issue that would happen like you know 35 years ago where people don't know who wrote it you can't you know find your linkedin profile or your soundcloud <laughs> link that's got all your songs right. on it it's, you know how do you find out if you forgot who wrote the song i'm telling man. you you know if the business gets stranger and stranger <laughs> that's true. and also you know i feel like things have changed where now if that happened i mean it almost couldn't happen now but it, even if it did i feel like somebody would just go ah well we don't know who wrote that on to the next song we'll, we'll issue a different one as a single you know <laughs> well, yeah yeah that's the truth there's a lot of weirdness uh, yeah um well in 1985 you had a, a top 40 hit by judy rodman called you're gonna miss me when i'm gone as well as a charting single by holly dunn um, right but then you found yourself back at the top of the charts again in 1987 when michael johnson took your song the moon is still over her shoulder to number one on the country chart the moon is still over her shoulder and the stars are still falling Above. 
followed by his recording of That's That, which was a, a top 10 hit the next year. And, you know, right. you are one of the rare songwriters. Uh, you know, I can think of Steve Seskin and, and you and, and not a lot of others um, who have had significant success on the country chart without actually ever moving to Nashville. And I'm curious if I'm sure it's a question you get a lot, but back in the, in the 1980s, when you were first having those big country successes, did you consider relocating to Nashville? Well, you know, what happened was uh, those three songs you mentioned, you know, Judy Rodman and Michael Johnson and Holly Dunn, yeah, that was all part of my MTM year. Right. You know, I got signed to Tommy West uh, in New York. He did all of Jim Croce stuff. Hmm. And then Tommy proceeded to, to, get together with MTM, Mary Tyler Moore uh, Productions, and form a label in Nashville. Right. And so, you know, I was one of the staff writers, and I was also signed as an artist there. So suddenly, you know, even though I hadn't really been in Nashville but a couple of times, I suddenly was signed to a company in Nashville. Wow. And uh, so, you know, so I went down there a lot. And uh, the reason I... There's two reasons I never moved there. The primary one is that um, I don't ever practically ever co-write hmm, you know I, right. I like to write uh, songs all by myself so that and then the second thing is um, I find when I'm in Nashville I really love going down there but after about a week I start feeling like uh, I need to hurry up there's something about having the music business you know right in my face hmm. you know day after day that that starts making me uh, uncomfortable yeah, yeah. And I start feeling pressure to, to write a hit. You know, you got to write a hit. You know, everywhere you go out to dinner, oh, this guy's on a third number one. This, you know, and, and I hear I hear all this stuff, and it's I just start thinking, oh man, I got to hurry up. So I like <laughs> to go back to, you know, the east end of Long Island where I live, and just, you know, go into my cave, yeah. and just forget about the. Sure. Music. Well, Nashville was still good to you. You scored another number one in 1990 with Randy Travis's recording of Hard Rock Bottom of Your Heart, I and mean, that's one of my favorite songs from the Hugh Presswood catalog. That got oh, Randy a Grammy you. nomination, earned you BMI's Country Song of the Year award. And I keep waiting for you to forgive me. And you keep saying you can't even start. And I feel like a stone you have picked up and thrown. To the hard rock bottom of your heart. To the heart. Tell us about the inspiration for that song and the experience of seeing it become so successful. Well, you know, uh, I was a big, huge Randy Travis fan. Yeah. And uh, the idea, you know, he was hot as could be, and so the idea of getting a cut on him, you know, was really exciting. Yeah. The song itself, you know, I had this idea. It was just a title, you know. I, I one day I thought, you know, Hard Rock Bottom, Bottom of Your Heart, you know, something. I just took, put them together, and uh, ended up with this title. And then I sat down, thought, well, let me write, uh, and, you know, uh, a theme that crops up in my songwriting a lot is, is forgiveness. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that song is really about being, you know, trying to get forgiveness from someone, you know, that you run around on. Yeah. And um, so I just, you know, I just sort of, you know, emotionally try to put myself into that place of, uh, you know, asking for forgiveness. And uh, it's a pretty simple song. And... Um, you know, they cut a great record on it, and they told me, you know, first uh, I got a call from uh, uh, the head of A&R at Warner Brothers saying that, well, you know, we cut the song, but it didn't turn out as good as we'd hoped. 
and hmm. I, I felt crushed. Hmm. And then the record came out, and I thought, and I listened to the cut, and I thought, man, that sounds great to me. And then, lo and behold, I got another call a few months later saying, it's going to be a single. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you a funny story, just to waste some of your airtime. <laughs> uh, when here. it was BMI Song of the Year, you know, uh, BMI came out and did a big article on me for their, you know, their BMI magazine. Right. And uh, it was a really nice write-up, and they had some nice photos. And at some point, the guy asked me, you know, like, you know, how's your, well, how's your career going? Hmm. And I said, you know, well, you know, my career is it's sort of like, tar, you know, how Tarzan's swinging through the jungle, you know, and he's on a vine, and just about the time he runs out of momentum on one vine, he grabs another vine. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, and and that's how I, how I thought about my career is like you know just about the time I'm running out of some, something else happens. Thank yeah. God. <laughs> so anyway, so anyway, the article comes out and it says the guy says these days Prestwood feels like Tarzan of the jungle. And <laughs> 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 you know, oh my God, I, I sound like a complete a hole. Pounding your chest. <laughs> L- luckily, and I was soon forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in you say that one of your favorite themes is is forgiveness. Are you um somebody who likes to explore the the need to forgive others or or somebody who is seeking forgiveness? Uh just both, I guess, you know, uh I uh I you know, like I I've had a over the years I've had a couple of people tell me that uh hard rock bottom saved their marriage, you know. Oh. Yeah. Just to encourage them to, you know, hang in there. Right. I don't know, I just, you know, I, believe it or not, one of the fundamental sort of core emotional uh, parts of my writing has to do with my, my parents, my mother and my father, right. who uh, very much loved each other, but my father was a full-blown alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were divorced when I was fairly young. Yeah. And yet uh, they were still always kind of involved. And and so in, in some funny way, I, I think some part of me always thought, gee, if my mother had just, if in this day and age, if she could have worked with them or something, you know, they could have they could have made it work. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, so that's part of where this forgiveness thing comes. From. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it seems that 1990 was a great year for you. Uh, after that, Randy Travis success, you hit the top five twice more with Anne Murray's recording of "Feed This Fire." followed by Shenandoah's version of Ghost in This House, a song that was beautifully covered a few years later by Alison Krauss. And Amen to that boy. I'm just a ghost in this house I'm just a shadow upon these walls As quietly as a mouse I haunt these walls Just a whisper of smoke I'm all that's left of two hearts on fire Then once burned out of control You took my body and soul I'm just a ghost in this house And when I was preparing for this interview And I heard that song again uh, it, it tapped into this memory that I had 
completely forgotten about. And uh, when I was 18, I went on a trip to Vancouver, Canada with my parents uh, because my dad was involved in some sort of Canadian music conference that was going on there. And you and your Hi. wife were also there. And I remember that you performed at a songwriter function. And one of the songs that you played that night was Ghost in This House. And right. I had actually not heard the song uh, from the time that I heard you all those years ago until I was preparing for this interview. And I hadn't thought about that song in years, but I suddenly had this flashback moment that I had completely forgotten mm. about of hearing you play that song. And it was one of the first times as a, a very young adult, just, just graduated from high school, um, I think that was the first time that I heard a songwriter play a song and I just thought, damn, that is an amazingly crafted song. And hearing that kind of made me realize as a, a budding musician and, and almost aspiring songwriter very shortly after that time that, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of songs, obviously, somebody has to write songs, but there's a difference between just sort of writing a song and masterfully sculpting a song. Um, and I, I had this weird flashback of, of hearing you sing that and just being moved emotionally by that song and thinking, man, I wish that I could do that. Um, and uh, it was kind of cool for me just to have that, uh, that memory yeah, come, come floating back. Um, but you, you know, I've, heard people joke and say, you know, Hugh Prestwood writes four songs a year and they all become number one hits. <laughs> and I'm sure that that's an exaggeration, yeah, that's an exaggeration. Yeah, but you're certainly not a one man song factory, you know, churning them out like an assembly line. And so I'm a very slow writer. I write about a song a month. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm curious about that. And, and I guess what my long question is building up to is, Talk about your, your process and why that sort of methodical crafting and chiseling a song has worked so well for you when so many other country writers have found success kind of cranking out one song every day, one after another. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, uh, Ghost in This House really represents to me uh, a whole lot of what I try to do in most of my songs, which is to really uh, tap into something that I feel really deeply about and also that I had experience with. Hmm. You know, I always tell uh, writers that uh, I used to just get an idea for a song and I'd go write it or try to write it. A lot of times I wouldn't finish it. Yeah. And uh, eventually I, I started slowing down and saying, okay, here's an idea for a song. Do I care about this thing? And, and most importantly, have I been there? Yeah. Like, you know, the, the, the verses in Ghost in This House are really, really based off a couple of real heartbreaks I had. Hmm. And I was just, and I always feel like if I can just really tap into what I've really experienced and seen, and if I can pull some of that into a song, it just makes the song to me much more real and more believable. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I had, you know, I had the idea for Ghost uh, from, uh, just, I had just a title, and uh, I had seen the movie The Grapes of Wrath, and there's a scene in there where this character, M Muley, says, He's lost everything he has, you know, and he says, I'm just an old graveyard ghost. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that idea down, and then later on, uh, my wife was in a minor car accident, and, was, you know, she was, she was hurt a little bit. It wasn't very serious, but it was enough to make me start thinking, what if it had been a serious accident? And yeah. so 
in that kind of mood, you know, I, I, I saw that title and I thought, I'm going to write that song and sort of, you know, about what it would be like if I had lost my wife. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, but but what happens with me in terms of this, my slowness in writing is it has to do with the lyric. Uh, I always think, you know, it's funny, when I moved to, up to New York, I thought, you know, I'm not, I wasn't a very strong performer. Hmm. And, uh, and I always felt like, you know, for me to get up on, get up on stage, I had to have a better song. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, that's how I sort of compensate. So I think in some kind of really insecure way, you know, I always constantly think when I'm writing a song, can I make it better? Can I make it better? Yeah. And particularly where you hit the grinding is with the lyric. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I always say uh, my lyric writing is sort of like doing the New York Times crossword puzzle, <laughs> which I get about half of it without too much trouble, and then it starts getting harder, and then there's a section that I, you know, go crazy trying to straighten out. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and so, so, you know, that's the reason I'm a slow writer, mainly, is, is I'm just, uh, the lyric is, I'm just trying to get it perfect. Right, mm-hmm. sure, yeah. Well, and with a song like Ghost in This House, I mean, you've, obviously got a reputation as a great song craftsman who knows how to tackle that weighty material but you know you've also written some lighthearted stuff too like bing bang boom which was a top 15 hit for the band highway 101 in 1991 You know, even though a song like that is deceptively fun and upbeat, you know, the lyric is tightly constructed and it's another one of your well-crafted songs. Do you approach the process any differently when you're writing kind of a heart-rending ballad uh, versus when you're writing a more upbeat or playful song? No, I, th- I think I pretty much give it the same, you know, I- I- intense effort as I can do yeah. on the song. Um, some songs to me, like On the Verge, is, is sort of just kind of a fun musical groove thing. But I'm again. I'm trying to draw. You know, you know, one of the things. Getting back to my insecurities about a, being a p- performer. Uh, when I listen to my songs, uh, I always say to myself, you know, I finish my songs about 20 times hmm. <laughs> because I keep thinking, okay, it's good enough. And the next day, I get up and think, you know, it's it's, it's not good enough. And right. uh, I'm all, what I'm always looking for is what I call fat in a song. Mm, right. You know that something in there that is just kind of wasting time or doesn't really add anything to the song. And a compliment I get a lot that I appreciate from other writers is that uh, I'm very economical, that it, mm. there's nothing wasted in there. Yeah. And that's something, you know, that is not just natural to me. That's something that by constant examination, I keep yeah. thinking, okay, how can I get every bit of the song to be, you know, believe it or not, I'm a huge, I'm a huge uh, fan of, you know, painting. You know, if I could be uh, Edward Hopper, I'd love to be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, when I walk out of the Metropolitan Museum sometimes after seeing some of these amazing paintings, one of the things I'm always struck by is that even on a really large canvas, every bit of that canvas really matters. There's yeah. not one inch of a great painting that doesn't matter. Yeah. So, you know, it's not just the center of focusing. It's every inch of it. So in a way, that's how I think about songs. That every bit of it's got to matter. Yeah, I like that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and it almost is impossible to write that way and crank out a song a day. You just can't put that type yeah, of thought in. Yeah, the kind of things I'm trying to write are pretty hard to crank out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Well, I think one of the, the real fine examples of, of exactly what you're talking about is the song Remembers When. Um, that was a, a chart-topping hit for Trisha Yearwood in 1993. It was named the NSAI Song of the Year. It earned you a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Music and Lyrics for a, a Disney special featuring Trisha. And there was a God in heaven And the world made perfect sense We were young and were in love And we were easy to convince We were headed straight for Eden It was just around the bend And though I have forgotten all about it The song remembers well Talk about the, the inspiration for that song and also... I understand that that was one where it kind of took a while for it to find the right home, find the right yeah, artist. Yeah, Tell us about that. Well, um, when I got the song done, I really thought, man, this is as good a song as I can write. Sure. And uh, so, you know, strangely enough, I, I, I really got into a pretty depressed state for a while because we couldn't get the song cut. Hmm, huh. And it, and I began to feel like it was, it was sort of a rejection of, you know, what I most, you know, wanted to do. Right. And I felt like if I can't get this song cut, then, you know, I, you know I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> right. And uh, the song knocked around for a, like a year or two, and then Kathy Matea cut it, and I was excited about that, and then, goddamn, if they didn't leave it off the record. Mm. Oh, jeez. And I, was, I remember thinking, you know, I'll eat that record if there are ten songs on that record that are better than this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh... But anyway, it really worked out for the best because uh, eventually it got back around to Trisha, and uh, boy, she killed it. Yeah, yeah. I was sitting in her producer's office, Garth Fundus, uh, when he, when I first heard the cut, and I, when it was over, I jumped out of the chair and I said, we're in the Hall of Fame! <laughs> awesome. <laughs> nice. And nice. she just killed it. It was unbelievable. Yeah, you know, amazing. if you had had to eat that Kathy Matea record, it was nice that you were in the cassette era. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Probably been a little funny. easier to get. I talked to Kathy about it later on. She she was she said she it was a big huge mistake on her part. She said that, that she said she was never going to let the label tell her what to do. Wow, after right. That. Yeah, she was probably like, oh man, <laughs> could have had that. Huge I've never cut. heard the cut, and I and she said it's a really good cut, but really? I've never heard it. Yeah, interesting. Um. Well, you know, Calvin Ray is not an artist that we hear a lot about these days, but back in the 90s, there was like nobody bigger. He had more than 20 top 10 country hits, and he's, one of those... He's a fantastic song performer. Yeah, absolutely. Singer. Killer yeah. singer, and, and you know, one of the those huge hits that he had was your song, On the Verge, which was the fourth biggest country single for that year, according to Billboard magazine. And, uh -huh. you know, you mentioned earlier that... Um, you're not a co-writer, uh, that you write solo. And all of these songs that we've been talking about, including this huge Colin Ray hit, these are all songs that uh, were written solo. And, you know, that really is an anomaly in the in the country world. The vast majority of country songwriters tend to be co-writers. And so we know mm -hmm. that that you are not a co-writer, but I'm curious if you ever tried it. And if so, kind of how did that process go for you? You know, I tried it a few times, I've, and I tried it with uh, some really big time writers. I've tried it with some really good friends. You know, people you know, I should technically, uh, theoretically, be able to relax around. Right. And the same thing happens every time with me. So I'm, I'm in the room with them, and in about, I swear, in less than thirty minutes, I want out of there. Wow. 
I, you know, I feel like I'm trapped. It's like I'm back in high school, and when is the bell going to ring? You know, <laughs> right. For me to go home. I, I don't know. Something in me um, just doesn't. Uh, it's like my brain doesn't work when I'm sitting in a room with someone else. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, another thing I, I, I found over the years when I would try it, I, uh, like some of the ideas I would have, you know, like song members when, you know, they're, they're, they're not real obvious ideas. Hmm. You know, and, and a lot of times a, a co-writer, when I would throw out an idea, they wouldn't, they wouldn't recognize what I was really getting at. Right, sure. But, you know, first and foremost, I just, uh, like a friend of mine said one time, you know, uh, you know, great painters don't hand their brush off to someone else. Hmm. And I just, I just want to do it myself. I feel a great, uh, I get a great satisfaction, and it's extremely gratifying to write a song and I just like doing it myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Well, I had a, you know, funny. Uh, just a quick story about uh, on the verge, right? That you know, Neil, Neil Diamond came down to uh, Nashville a few years ago to do a record, writing with some of the Nashville writers. Yeah, yeah. The Tennessee I was called and asked if I wanted to do it, and uh, and I'm a huge Neil Diamond fan, so I said, well, yeah, absolutely, I'll do it. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I got I got down to Nashville, and I and I started. On the verge, I had you know I was going to go into Neil Diamond with this uh, half-started song, right? So at least I had something. Uh, but I flew down and I, and I met with Neil Diamond the day before, and the next day we were supposed to get together and write all day. And I just the night before I just got so nervous I was having a cow. I was I thought <laughs> oh my god I'm going to be sitting in the room with Neil Diamond and my struck dumb. Right. And uh, <laughs> so I called up the next morning and uh, you know made up an excuse. Wow! Wow! You 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 ghosted Neil Diamond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow! And then amazing. and then uh, uh, I got back to New York and finished the song, and lo and behold, you know, I had a really big hit on it. Yeah! Wow! Yeah! I mean, that's. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah. That's amazing. I think that goes down technically as the right decision. Yeah! Wow! <laughs> that's that's crazy. <laughs> uh, a, a funny little ending of that story is when I called up to Neil Diamond's house. He was renting out. I, his, and answered, and I said, you know, I got to cancel because my mother's been in a car accident. You know, <laughs> right? I, I figured I had, to, had to have a good excuse. <laughs> I, I'm laughing, and, uh, but that wasn't true, I, right? You know, and Mike Reed, who's one of my hero writers, you know, right. I told him this story. And so I got back to New York, and about a month later, my phone rang, and uh, I said hello, and they said, is this Hugh Presswood? And I said, yes, and they said, this is Neil Diamond's office, and we're wondering how your mother's doing. Wow. <laughs> I had a heart attack, and then I heard laughter. It's Mike Reed. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I was about to say, "Wow, Neil's such a nice guy." <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you know, the, the other writers that wrote with him really did rave about the guy. They said he was great. Yeah. 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 Neil's one of the classic writers. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. But you know, Neil's kind of like a—he's kind of like a solo guy too. It's interesting to think about him co-writing. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I you know, it's funny. I never really heard the record. Hmm. that he ended up making. So I have no idea whether how good it was. Yeah. Well, you know, all that wisdom that you've got as a writer and, and that approach that you've created and honed, you've shared that with a lot of students. You Starting in 1982, you've been teaching advanced songwriting at the New School in Manhattan. You did that for about 20 years. Um, yeah. You know, and this corresponded with some of your most successful years on the charts as a songwriter. So I'm guessing you didn't just do that to pick up some extra cash. Um but it's something that, that really meant a lot to you. So I, I'd love to hear about how teaching songwriting has fulfilled you and what you've learned about writing through the process of teaching others. You know, it's, it's very gratifying to teach uh, 
you know, uh, a subject that the students want to want to learn. You know what I mean, as opposed to like yeah. a typical public school uh, kind yeah. of thing. And uh, I just kind of lucked into this new school thing. A friend of mine told me that they were looking. The guy who had been teaching uh, was retiring, and they were looking for someone. So I went down. I ended up getting this job, and I really had no idea how I wrote a song. You know, I'd never thought about it really. I just did it. And so it took me about a couple of years of teaching before I think I started, you know, kind of being able to translate, you know, how I think you should write a song. And, uh, you know, over the years, I just really enjoyed doing it. I wasn't making that much money at it. Pretty right. much it paid for my uh, parking. And <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, I've all, you, know, I, you know, I come from a long line of teachers. My mother was a college professor and my sister was a high school principal. Mm. My grandmother's a teacher, and, uh, you know, I just, something in me, I, I, you know, I've often thought that good songwriters are, in a, in a way, good preachers. Like, we have something we want to say. Yeah, right. Teaching is sort of the same thing, you know. I like communicating to people who, you know, will listen. Sure. So I just kept doing it from, for year after year. I kept thinking, well, I won't do it another year, but then I, I thought, oh, you know, I enjoy doing it. Yeah. So I just kept doing it. Eventually, uh, it got to where... The pop, you know, the the typical New York songwriter was getting more and more uh, into pop that was getting mm. less and less into what I'd call, you know, classic song structure. Yeah. yeah. And I and I felt like, you know, eventually, you know, you know, what they want is not where I'm at. Sure. Did you ever have any students? But that's not true that... in Nashville. In Nashville, you know, I love teaching down there for the National Songwriters Association. Right, right. Have you ever had any students that kind of went on and made you proud as songwriters? I've had, I've had a, a, a few that have had cuts. I haven't had anybody... Uh, you know, that's become uh, huge. Right. You know, at one time I was at the VMI Awards, you know, right. and uh, in Nashville, and this guy comes up to me. I didn't know him, but he had to be in the business so he wouldn't be at the VMI Awards. Right. He said, are you Hugh Presswood? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, you know, one of your students uh, played me one of his songs recently. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, yeah, it was the worst song I ever heard. <laughs> 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 thank you. Thank you. Know? I appreciate that. Um, well, you know, being a songwriter usually means that you get to be, uh, fairly anonymous and you have, you know, probably even enjoyed that anonymity more than a lot oh, by, yeah. by choosing to, to sort of live outside the, the Nashville circus. Um, but you did have this, uh, brief moment in the spotlight in the Nashville tabloids after a little, uh, run in with the law at a New York airport oh, yeah. in 2004. Um, talk about kind of what happened there and how that influenced your thinking about the way singers and musicians are scrutinized by the public. <laughs> well, in a funny way, it, it, turned, it, it actually did me some good to be uh, a known songwriter. You know, what <laughs> happened was, uh, I had a, uh, I had a pistol in my New York city apartment. Right. That I'd had ever since I moved up from Texas, and it was it was registered in Texas, but it was you know not registered in New York. Yeah. And uh, I was going. I was scheduled to, to play at the Bluebird in Nashville, and I was playing with Michael McDonald. Oh wow! And uh, about three days before that, I was I taught my class in songwriting, and uh, I was going to have some work done on the apartment, like they were going to paint it. Right. And I wasn't going to be there, and I and I started worrying about the the you know the gun being in the apartment. Sure. So I, after my class, I swung by, put the gun in my bag, which is my sort of my same bag I use carry on. Right. When I fly, and I just completely forgot about it. Right. <laughs> you know, we went to the airport, 
my wife uh, went ahead, and I went and parked the car. She went up to a restaurant where I was supposed to meet her. And I'm going through security, and all of a sudden I see the, the guy's looking at that monitor, and he calls the cop over, and then they said, is that your bag? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, there's a loaded gun in there. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> And, I, you know, it was really, I, I was immediately handcuffed. Oh, jeez. And uh, arrested. Wow. And uh, what was really scary was that in New York, you know, the, it was a mandatory one year in jail for an under, possession of an unregistered firearm. Oh, wow. It was extremely frightening. Yeah. And, and my poor wife, she was sitting up in the restaurant, didn't know what happened to me. Finally, I, I kept telling the police, go tell my wife, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so they went and told her what had happened. And uh, anyway, I was taken to jail. I was in jail for three days. Are you serious? Jeez. And they uh, had to, uh, my wife had to, you know, had to come up with a fifty thousand dollar cash bail. Wow. To get me out, and uh, it was really it was really scary. But wow. you know, uh, it was just a stupid mistake. You know, yeah. if they'd have had I, if they'd have had a neon sign saying, you know, if you have a gun in your bag, take it out, I wouldn't have thought about it. <laughs> right. I, right. I just forgot about it. Yeah. And eventually, you know, it's funny, when I was in, at, right after I'd been arrested and I was in this sort of holding room that the police had, uh, I heard some guy outside say, hard rock bottom of your heart. <laughs> 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 and so I thought, all right, they already know who I am, right. you know. <laughs> and, then, and then a funny thing, when I was in jail, the first night I was in jail, I was in this cell and, and the guards had a kind of a room that was glassed in sort of in the center of, of this big holding tank and you, there was a TV on in there. And by God, I saw myself on television. Wow. <laughs> like, a matter of, literally, a matter of about three hours, I was on TV. Yeah, that's incredible. My, my poor wife, you know, she went back home and she thought, well, no one's going to know about this. It happened up the island, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Boy, was she wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I have two, two thoughts pop into my head in regards to this story. One is, you know, it, as far as scandals go, for being a Nashville songwriter and a country guy, you, you can't do much better than like, man, this guy had a loaded pistol in his bag. You know, he really <laughs> yeah, knows the, you know, the that, drill. That's funny, I had, I had a big writer call me up and said, he said, Hugh, if I ever get arrested, I hope it's for having a gun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And then uh, number two, I hope there was some sort of song inspiration that sprang in those three days in jail. I mean, that's, that's a you change of, of, of scenery if there ever was one. <laughs> You know, that's a lot of people have asked me that, and I, I don't think I've ever really drawn on that experience. Yeah, um, yeah it might be coming. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, you know, I don't. First of all, you know, I don't want to act like you know I've done hard times. Sure. You know I mean? right, right. <laughs> You're not going to do your whole San Quentin thing. <laughs> right. I was only in there three days, and, and it got reduced to the lowest level misdemeanor, so I worked out all right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I had a good judge, luckily. Yeah, wow, uh, that's wild. You know, you know, it's funny. I have a lot of stories about that kind of three days but you know nothing that i've ever tried to pull into a song yeah yeah crazy well you know more than 40 years after moving to new york to pursue your dreams as a as a singer songwriter you've recently released your first proper full-length album uh i used to be the real me and kind of appropriately full circle that's on judy collins's wildflower records um right and I'm curious, you know, after all this time, after after four decades sort of pursuing um, the the songwriting and, and finding such great success, what prompted you to release uh, this project as both writer and artist at this time? Well, you know, uh, the market, you know, the country market, you know, was getting further and further away from the kind of songs I wanted to write. Yeah. You know, like people sometimes say these days, oh, you could never get song members cut, plan cut now. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And in the meantime, I thought I was writing some really great songs and, and some, you know, somewhat artsy. You know, I thought I was writing some great songs. Sure. And, uh, I, you know, there, I had no outlet for them anymore, it seemed like. Yeah. And uh, I, one day I was watching uh, television, and Judy Collins had, had, did this concert at the Metropolitan Museum of Art about three years ago, and uh, she, I was just blown away. She was great. I couldn't believe it. She mm. sounded great. She was, I, was just, I was knocked out. And we had, you know, we'd been in touch now and then, but uh, it'd been a while since I talked to her. So after I saw that show, I called her up and said, you know, I just thought you were unbelievable. And, and then I said, well, you know, I, I'll have to send you some of my new songs. Right. And, Anyway, I sent her some of these new songs, and she called me back. She says, you know, she was raving. She said, these are unbelievable. She said, I want to cut some of them, and I want to do a record on you. Huh, wow, cool. And on our little label. So I said, all right. <laughs> I'm going to be the oldest man to break into show business. <laughs> nice. I can do it. So uh, anyway, we collaborated for about a year and a half, uh, going over what, you know, and the songs are basically uh, my demos, that, uh, with the exception of two where she puts harmonies on, oh, yeah. beautiful harmonies. Yeah. But they're just my my stuff. We you know we had a master, and I really think the record came out great. Yeah, sounds well, yeah. Cool. There are thirteen songs on the album. Some that we haven't heard, and there are some like the suit, which has been recorded by Jerry Douglas with James Taylor. It was one of those occasions where you had to wear a suit. So his wife drove down to a thrift store and found him a beaut. And of course, there's your own version of the song Remembers When. Um, how did you go about selecting which songs would go on this album? Just, uh, you know, like I said, Judy and I w- w- went over a lot of songs and just, I, you know, I picked out the ones that I was sort of most proud of. Mm. And... Uh, you know, and, and a couple that were known. I wanted to put the song of Went on there because I felt like Judy's audience probably doesn't even know that song. Mm, yeah. Um, but it was just, you know, it was just a matter of, you know, let's try to get a good mix, you know, and, and make it as palatable as I could yeah. and uh, just worked it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, it really came out great. And, and uh, I, I think there's something about hearing you do your own songs that's, that's really special. Yeah. And so... Uh, you know, I hope our listeners will go and, and download that album or or even order it in physical form if they're traditionally minded. You spend some time you know, uh, uh, with that. that. Here, here, you know, let me, if I can read, let me read you, if Mike Reed won't get mad at me, I'll, I'll read him. He sent me an email uh, a couple of days ago, you know, he, he got the record and he says, he said to me, uh, quote, there are two roads available to anyone encountering these songs. Throw up your hands and yell. I give, I'll never do that, and quit, or you can accept that if you care about excellence, you now know how high the bar is. Wow. Isn't that wow. cool? That's that awesome. is super cool. And Mike Reed... Uh, knows what being, he's talking about. Being the guy who wrote I Can't Make You Love Me, yeah. I think he knows uh, what, he, what he's saying when yeah, he talks he, about... Yeah, he's one of my heroes. <laughs> yeah, killer songwriter. Um, well, one last question for you, and we'll, we'll let you go, and... and uh, you know, being a guy who has never been a Nashville resident, you have still made enough of an impact that you were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2006. Uh, yeah. what, did, what did that honor mean for you? Oh, man, it meant everything. And I wouldn't trade that for any, you know, I wouldn't take, uh, you give me 20 Grammys, I wouldn't trade it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, to be, you know, first of all, it's really an elite little club. They Absolutely. only induct four people a year. Yeah. And uh, I never thought I'd get in because I had two big disadvantages. I don't have as many hits as most of them that are in there. And second of all, I never lived down there. Sure. So I don't have that many friends. And uh, so, it was, you know, I was shocked that I got nominated. And I was really shocked when I got in. Yeah. But it just, uh, you know, it's a great honor. It really is. It is, you know, I think everybody in Nashville, including the artists, all would, you know, want to be in the, the Nashville Summers Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Very prestigious group and uh, and very well deserved. And I, I think, uh, you know, Paul and I are both Nashville natives. We've both uh, been around the the Nashville music community for a long time. And I think guys like you are sort of these uh, mystical, uh, rare, you know, the the dude who doesn't live there and, and lives outside that world but has managed to write songs that are so undeniably good that they find their way in Nashville is really a cool thing. And, and uh, I think you occupy this really neat space of commercial success in country music with absolute artistic integrity and, you know, really caring about authenticity and, and crafting your songs. And so it, it's a oh, real thank inspiration. Thank you very much. That's a really nice compliment. Yeah. Well, well it's, it's definitely heartfelt. And, uh, so we just, you know, thank you for the great songs over the years. And, uh, and again, the, the great new album, uh, that we've been enjoying and thank you so much for, for taking some time and, and talking with us today. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.